Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week, the program where you can get your daily recommended intake of science. My name is Claire, and speaking of daily recommended intakes, today I'm going to be doing a story on milk. Hang on, wait, you did milk recently. I did do milk recently, but we had, we actually had a request from a listener to talk a bit about not just, you know, the soy milks and, and the other milks that I was talking about, but um, specifically having a look at A2 milk. Have you seen that milk in the supermarkets recently? Apparently it has superpowers. Apparently it has superpowers. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Believe the marketing and you'll you'll think you can grow wings with this milk or something like that. So we're going to have a look at um, whether there's any science to back up those claims. Manisha, what have you got for us today? So today I'm going to be talking about... Like defending yourself when this, like the odds are stacked up against you. Are you talking about a particular species that defends itself? Or are you talking about just in general? I, I thought I'd talk about how um, plants defend themselves. Oh, okay. oh plants! Okay, okay. Right. They, haven't got, yeah. they haven't got arms and legs to yeah. fight and scratch and punch. It is problematic. So what, do they, what do they do? Stand there and take it. They they bark at the attacker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just leave. <laughs> Yes, they exactly. make like a tree. That's right, and leave. Yeah, oh yeah, god, yes, we'll go stick around. Chris, are that. you going to make like a tree and leave, or are you going to stick around and I give us a story? I am going to stick around, Claire. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, <laughs> I am going to. I um, I'm going to. I'm continuing one of our regular features. This one, I think, we called um, something like in your neighbourhood, looking at our solar system, like the planets of our solar system. But anyway, after Pluto, because Pluto is that you know, it's still controversial. The whole thing is it a planet? Is it a dwarf planet? And, you know, people talk about that. And I thought, well, what about, what is a dwarf planet? What are the other dwarf planets that are out there? So I thought I'd take a look at the, the lesser known kind of... Sleepy, dopey, dark. No, there's, they're not. <laughs> um, they do have some silly names, though. We'll get on to their, their... Not silly names. They have some interesting names. Creative names. Yeah, yeah. Fun so, names. so we'll have a look at that, some of the dwarf planets. They don't quite make the cut of planets, but they're the ones, basically, Pluto's peers... Compatriots, compadres, um, amigos. Pluto's compatriots. <laughs> the other six I love guys it. that yeah. live with Pluto. Well, I can't wait to hear about it. On with the show. So a couple of weeks ago I did a story about the relative nutritional merits and environmental impacts of cow's milk versus soy milk. Almond, cashew and all the rest. Do you remember yeah, yeah. that? That yep, was yep. pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway, one of our listeners followed us up on Facebook. You can do that, listeners. You can find us on Facebook. That's Lost in Science on 3CR, I believe. That's right. Or you can tweet at us or you can email, email us, us at sci at gmail.com. Yeah, please. Because if you do um, and you tell us what you want us to talk about, then we get on the radio the next week and we talk about it. Would you say we're desperate for attention? Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, I mean, cool. I mean, that's what it certainly sounds like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway... 
we had a message on our Facebook about a specific type of milk that people are seeing in their supermarkets now, and that's this A2 milk. You might have seen it's all over the labelling on yep. both normal milk and also this specific A2 Time yeah, yeah. yeah, it's become a real marketing thing. Mm. It's become a real marketing thing, and like all marketing things, you got to be suspicious, mm. especially when you go to their website and they say things like, "People say it just feels better in your body." So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So today I'm going to have a look at what the deal is with this milk, um, whether there's any science to some of these claims. Let's start with the claims. I've already told you about feels better in your body. But all, <laughs> also on the website, these A2 milk people claim that people who drink their A2 milk are less likely to have digestive discomfort afterwards. Okay. And less yeah. likely than who, than what? Yeah. As opposed to drinking I know. what? Also, so many questions. Okay. So many questions. Sweet deal. <laughs> Yep, so there seems to be a lot of this qualitative assessment, not a lot of scientific rigour to the studies and some dodgy testimonials, Mm. yeah, by people that may or may not exist. Anecdata. To get back to the science. So cow's milk contains protein, which we we all know. The primary group of milk proteins are the caseins. You would have heard of them before, caseins. Mm, It's um, that um, cold chisel song about them. That's caisson. Oh. Yeah, Chris, come yeah. on. Get okay. your caseins and your caissons right. right. So A1 and A2 are the two types of beta casein. Right. And beta casein is just one of three major casein proteins that are present okay. in milk. So you have your, your A1 and your A2. And the way that they differ is by one amino acid right. um, in their chemical structure. So they're pretty similar, mm-hmm. but they differ by one, yeah, one amino acid. So in your everyday cow, um, she might produce milk that has both A1 and A2 proteins. So this is the milk that we normally find on the supermarket shelf. A combination of Mm. A1 and A2, both proteins are naturally occurring. Genetic um, variants. Hence the marketing labels, naturally contains A2 protein. (laughs) That's right. Naturally. Anyway, so then food scientists worked out that the A1 protein produces something called beta-casomorphin-7 which has been shown to slow down bowel movements from the stomach to the anus and increase inflammation in the gut. This is just in rat studies. Okay. Yeah. So in response, a company came about after they patented a genetic test to determine what type of protein a cow produces in its milk. So pretty much this milk company can license dairy farmers to prove that their cows that they milk only produce milk that has the A2 protein in it. Okay, so this is, this is I think, where with the, from the marketing point of view, a lot of the confusion arises because, as I said, some of them had that thing saying contains yeah. A2 milk, but it doesn't yeah. say the, the A1 protein is yeah. the problem. Yeah. Yep. Mm. So in all, so in all your normal milk, you've yeah. got a combination of A1 and A2 because most dairy cows will express both proteins yeah. in their milk. But there are some some breeds of cow that only express the A2 protein. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and so this company has come up with this a genetic test, test, and and then yeah, and then these these dairy farmers so can it's register. Not, is it their, so like? It's not so much that you want more A2, it's just you want less A1. Like, that's their claim? Because well, the A1's it, the one that's slowing down your 
movement? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's it, it's an it's an absence of the A one, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Are we talking like irritable bowel syndrome? Is this the kind of thing yeah. we're talking about? Well, or even well, maybe initially some intolerance, maybe. So sorry, go on. Let me tell you. <laughs> there are initially some really um, harsh claims made about the A one proteins, like caused cardiovascular issues, huh. um, diabetes, and all that, huh. or like. All these sort of um, quite claims. Yeah, claims. But in 2009, the European Food Safety Authority did a literature review and it showed that there wasn't enough evidence to suggest that the A1 proteins had a negative effect on our health to that extent. Okay. So they were all out. So now the so now the marketing switched more towards that the A1 protein causes this digestive discomfort and symptoms that are usually associated with lactose intolerance. Yep. So, But lactose um, intolerance, that's like actually lactose, well, which yeah, is a different thing, isn't it? That's right. So since then, there's been a couple of peer-reviewed human trials looking at milk with A1 protein and A2 protein. Okay. So just A1 or just A2? Well, let me tell you. So the oh, first okay. peer-reviewed study had 41 people. Mm-hmm. Red flag. Massive sample size. (laughs) So 10 of the participants reported um, an intolerance to commercial cow milk. The researchers looked at the differences um, after drinking milk containing only the A1 protein versus milk containing only the A2 protein, which, like we said before, in ordinary milk, there's a combination of the A1 yeah, and A2 yeah. milk. So anyway, what they found was that after drinking the milk containing A1 protein only, participants reported softer stools, sorry, poo alert, than when drinking the A2 milk, which is sort of strange because um, in the previous data, they thought that um, the A1 protein was sort of supposed to, yeah, supposed to block you up a little bit. Anyway, so none of that was sort of conclusive. They and couldn't wait, draw any conclusive evidence. What about those 10 that were already getting irritated by just regular milk? So were they not included? Was it only 30? They, was, they were still included. They were still included, yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess this is a good point to bring in the side note that lactose intolerance has nothing to do with the protein in milk. It, lactose intolerance can't digest lactose, which is a sugar, mm. um, and it's due to a deficiency in the lactase enzyme. Mm-hmm. So lactose itself is present in both milk that contains A1 and A2 and milk that just contains A2. It's, it's in yeah. both milks. Anyway, so this second study was published this year, and it had 45 people. Oh, it's just an increase. So even more. Yeah, yeah, 45 people. Um, And the study compared A2 milk to uh, the A1-A2 combination. And of the 45 people in the study, 23 were lactose intolerant. Okay. Yep, so they still use them. So what it found was um, A2 milk um, did not cause, like, lots of unpleasant digestion, um, usually associated with milk consumption in people who were lactose intolerant. So it seemed to not have the sort of effects that people who were lactose intolerant would normally have with milk. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But when they drank the A1 and A2 milk, they had a stomach upset that you would expect when you drank drink that normal milk. milk. Yeah, I mean, I guess for anyone out there who's thinking of buying the milk, this A2 milk, if you don't have any issues with milk in the first instance, then there doesn't seem to be any evidence to suggest that there's yeah. any benefit from just having this A2. That's fair. Um, and if you're lactose intolerant, then there's lactose-free milk out there. 
um, yeah, that actually solves your problem yeah. by mm. not having lactose in it. So why would you want to use this A2 milk? Yeah. So unless there is going to be some more sort of far-reaching research with a lot more people and maybe looking at the effect of lactose-free milk and the effect of this A2 milk oh, and yeah. actually comparing them, mm. then, yeah, I think I think you can probably save yourself the money because it's quite expensive. It's like yeah. twice the price. Yeah, save yourself the money and just go with your normal everyday milk. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. I want everyone to think about something. Okay. If someone came up to you right now and bit you or hit you or tried to stab you... Or Whoa, was that a threat? Maybe. I'll stop it, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do? Well, we just heard scream. that. Scream. <laughs> scream, shout, try to hit back. Yeah. yeah. Do something, right? Yeah, move I'll, away. Run, run away, maybe. Run away, move away. Exactly. What would you do if you couldn't move or you couldn't run? Like, how would you defend yourself then? I'd glare. Glare at them, give them really dirty looks. Can you still scream? I, I would scream. Yeah, I guess I guess you could scream, but with plants, they haven't got any of these kind of options. They don't have the option to slap back or scream or ask for help or run away. So I thought plant defense mechanisms could be a cool thing to talk about. Plants, they're constantly being cut, they're slashed, they're chewed, they're eaten, they're stung and parasitized, they need something to help them survive otherwise we wouldn't have any plants right yeah i guess i guess we don't really think about that much because we do all those things to them and we do they that don't all seem of that. exactly complain so we just assume it's all right yeah it always i don't know breaks my heart a little bit when like i don't know somebody walks by a tree and pulls down the branches or something like that and i'm like oh please don't hurt the tree the poor little tree no does nobody else feel this way? <laughs> like pulls off a branch or just pulls it down? Like pulls it off. Like, you know, some people just like... Oh, and sort of strips it? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Doesn't it break your heart a little? It breaks mine. Yeah, a whole branch. But if it was an individual leaf, I wouldn't feel bad about that. No, I kind of do that to the leaves too. So I guess I'm yeah. just as bad. So I thought I'd share some of the unique defense mechanisms from the plant world. The first one is a bit of an obvious one. So thorns, prickles, and spines. We all know... Of course. Plants that Prickles, have... Prickles, spines, roses. Ouchie mamas. Oh, ow. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Stinging nettle, all of that. Oh, stinging nettle. That's, yeah, stinging nettle is yep. nasty. Cactus. Cactus are... Oh, yes. Mean. I have once sat on a cactus. That was <laughs> unfortunate <laughs> and sad, sad, sad experience. So another type of defense mechanism is an idioblast. And idioblasts are these sort of like specialized cells. They're sort of like this combined capsule of all of these different defense mechanisms so in this specialized cells or in these collections of specialized cells they'll have razor sharp crystals and they'll have yeah like and they'll have these little little crystals that they shoot out and they also have like chemicals so when the plant's actually getting predated or if it gets cut or something it the the predator will bite into these idioblasts and then they kind of get these sharp crystals shot into wow. the mouth and they oh. get these chemicals. Yeah. So were these um, sort of capsules that you can see? Not necessarily. They're just sort of like a set of specialized cells. What sort of plants are we talking about? So one of the ones that has it is uh, actually a Diefenbachia, like a common house okay. plant. So they're all sorts of different kind of plants. Um, a lot of the ones tend to be more tropical plants that have these sort of mechanisms. But, mm. but yeah, the cool thing is that they have these, like some of them have these enzymes that work similar to reptilian venom. So 
when the plant is predated, so like something like Diffenbachia, when it's when it's predated, it releases barbed calcium oxalate crystals into the mouth of their predator, and then it releases this like venom-like enzyme, so it can even cause uh, paralysis. And they noticed that when people started to eat them, they called it, I think they called it a deaf, deaf plant or a mum plant, because then the person couldn't talk afterwards. Ooh. So could you use, since they're, they're house plants and they have these like vicious protection mechanisms, could you use them as kind of watch plants? Like, kind of <laughs> you could train them. A guard yeah. plant? Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. There's uh, commensalism, which is where the plant actually enlists in help from other species to help defend it. So it's like um, there's some cases of acacia trees, uh, particularly the African acacia tree, and they house and feed aggressive ants. So um, so they're housing and feeding these aggressive ants, and then the ants are defending their home against anything that comes to destroy it. And so the... Yeah, so the ants are protecting the plant, and the trees have become so dependent on the plant, on the ant species, on the ants' defense, um, that if you removed the ants, which has been done in an experimental setting, the trees actually die. So they're oh. that dependent oh. on it for for the defense. Yeah, they have no other defense mechanisms. It's just like well, yeah. I'll well, they provide a home for these plant for these ants. Yeah, exactly. And I guess they've just put a lot of their efforts, like they're sure that these ants are going to end up defending them so why waste the energy and the effort totally. in creating other things um the other the final type of uh defense mechanism i wanted to mention was chemical signaling mm. so some plants when they're attacked or experienced like a stressful situation something like a drought or a fire they actually release volatile organic compounds which result in a physiological reaction in nearby plants so it's not just for like them. calling for help in a way, or they're sort of By the like... By time I get there, it's kind of like, what is a joke? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, they, they kind of... Um, they increase like toxin levels or toxin okay. concentrations. And um, they could even... Re- like, So there's some plants that release compounds that attract their predators' predators. So it's like a scent oh, or, a, yeah, or a chemical signal to, to attack whatever's attacking it. So it's really like communication between plants. Yeah. Basically, yeah. I'm, or communication I'm, between plants and higher things, order yeah. predators. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, you know, they, first of all, they're saying to the other ones, you know, increase your defenses. There's like a predator here. Mm. And they're saying they're calling in the cavalry, the troops. And <laughs> wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, with with things like drought or fire, they set, um, they can send signals, chemical signals to nearby plants like of the same species just to make them aware or oh, like this p- patch of soil is now like drought drought we know we know (laughs) yeah i don't know exactly how it works but there's something like that um yeah so don't underestimate plants because just because they can't hit you or fight back doesn't mean that they can't do some serious damage Right, so it is in your neighbourhood our feature on the solar system. Yes, that is what we're calling it. <laughs> yeah, what's the um, acronym for the the planets? The, the metonym for, to remember the names of the planets oh. uh, that they used to have. What? Mavenchnup or something? My very, very elderly <laughs> mother. My very elderly mother. Jumping something something. I don't know. Anyway, it was all ruined when they demoted Pluto from planet to dwarf planet. As if we people have often talked about it's still controversial but i thought we would have a bit of a look at all the other dwarf planets that are out there in the solar system and give them a bit of love but first of all we should guess talk about what we're talking about 
Yeah, what's the dwarf planet? Well, okay, so the, the deal is like when Pluto got demoted was basically when they really solidified what a planet was and what a dwarf planet was. Mm. Now, to be a planet, you have to be um, orbit the sun, quite clearly. You have to um, be kind of um, big enough that it has its mass for its, its gravity to kind of pull it together in a kind of what they call hydrostatic equilibrium, which is kind of like, you know, it's imagine a bit of a droplet of fluid um, would hold together into a sphere. So it's kind of that thing. So the gravity pulls it into kind of a nice... So um, big enough that it turns into a sphere. Well, roundish Roundish, shape. yep. Yep. Um, and the um, third criteria is that it has cleared the neighbourhood around its orbit. So basically it's the biggest thing in its neighbourhood. Um, so yeah, Pluto failed, I think, primarily on the last criterion. I mean, Pluto's a really weird orbit. It's not kind of... It's a bit kind of... It's, um, Irregular? Irregular, there's a word for it, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's a good word. I suggest looking it up. Um, so that was the main thing that Pluto failed. So essentially, um, dwarf planet is things that look like a planet, but aren't quite big enough to have kind of wiped everything else around them. So they just failed to meet all the criteria. Yeah, well, they, 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 that last criteria in particular. Mm. But I said it doesn't have to be a sphere. I mean, obviously, you know, even something like the Earth is not a perfect sphere. It's like a spheroid. It's kind of flattened at the poles. Yep. But there's one of the dwarf planets, um, Haumea, it's called. It's named after the Hawaiian goddess of fertility. It was discovered in 2004. And it's believed to be an ellipsoid where, like, its longest axis oh. is about twice as long as its shortest axis. Wow. And this is, I think, believed to be a result of some sort of collision, but it kind of wibbled around and it ended up with this elongated shape. So yeah, is it's, it like a, it's like a tic tac floating tall? in space or something. <laughs> So it's, uh, I think it's wider than this tall. It's usually mm. depicted in that way. Nice. So, yeah. So it doesn't have to be perfectly round, but it's kind of roundish Ish, yeah. is what we're saying. Yeah. So not lumpy like a comet or, a, or an asteroid or something like that. So it's, it's in the outer solar system in what they call the Kuiper Belt, which is where a lot of the, the comets and stuff hang out. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So Haumea is one of the, um, the five officially recognized dwarf planets by the International Astronomical Union. Astronomers have a union. How about that? So as well as Haumea and Pluto, of course, there is Eris. Make Make and nice. Ceres. Now, Eris, I'll, I'll address first of all, because Eris is kind of a notable one. It is, um, it's a fair way out. It's about 68 astronomical units out. Astronomical unit is, a dis- is the unit that we use for distance in the solar system. It's basically the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So 68 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Um, so it's a fair way out. Pluto is about 39 astronomical oh, units. Wow. So Eris is a fair way out. Uh, it was discovered in 2005 and it's named after the Greek goddess of discord and it has a moon called dysnomia. Um, which dysnomia? Means, which means lawlessness. Oh, cool. Yes. But... The great god of discord. Discord, yeah, oh, and so strife. Great. Yeah. Wow. Well, now could have been could have been even better, Claire, because um, basically when they discovered it, they um, for a while, about a year, they didn't really know what to classify it as, and so there were different rules depending on what sort of solar system body you are. So they gave it a working title. <laughs> a of, working title okay, of Xena. Ah, oh, Zena. Uh, and its moon, this name, of course. Gabrielle. Gabrielle, they called. So, look, this is the whole, I guess, when we look at the controversy around dwarf planets, you know, I was just thinking, like, one of the things with um, the arguments for creating this category and demoting Pluto was that, okay, well, if we call Pluto a planet, then we've got to let in all these other things, which are planets, mm. and we just have too many more planets. But how cool would it have been to have a planet called Xena? Yeah, that, that would have all been, been worthwhile. Cool. Uh, anyway, but now it's actually called Eris now. Um, now, Eris, it's, it's a little bit smaller in diameter than Pluto, just a tiny, a smidge smaller. It's about 67% the width of Earth's moon, but it is um, quite a bit bigger mass-wise than Pluto. It's believed to be about 28% heavier than Pluto. 
So it's a pretty heavy object um, that far out mm. in the solar system. Um, yeah, so it is, I think, in by mass, it is Eris would be the biggest of the dwarf planets, but not in diameter. Make Make, which is one of the other ones I mentioned, that is also named after a fertility god, this time from Rapa Nui, or Easter Island, for those playing at home. Oh, right. Um, it's quite a bit smaller than Eris and Pluto, um, as is Homea, which you mentioned earlier, that's also quite a bit smaller. Um, now, these smaller ones, which are in the Kuiper Belt out there, there's plenty of those. Um, now, so there's these, like I said, there's these five official ones recognised by the International Astron- Astronomical Union. You talk to certain astronomers, they'll have their own sort of personal list of other ones, about half a dozen or so more, which are you know, commonly thought to be dwarf planets out there. But it's believed there are hundreds of these things, possibly thousands of these things. So if they're not a there. dwarf planet, then what are they? Well, they're kind of minor um, solar system objects. They could be comets. They could be all kinds of things. Oh, you know, okay. Basically. So people would... Yeah, like depending on how... on their personal preference would name them dwarf planets essentially, instead of comets? Yeah, essentially you've got to work out how big they are, whether they're going to be big enough to classify as a dwarf planet or not. And, you know, these things are a long way away. You can't get a good look at them. You can't see whether they're round, essentially. Mm-hmm. So you don't really know until you actually go there. Uh, and it's going to be a long time since we visited any of these things because they're a long way away. Um, the New Horizons spacecraft which is the one that visited Pluto last year. Remember, it took those lovely pictures with the heart on Pluto. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Pluto sending us its love. Um, it's going to render, rendezvous with an object called 2014 MU69. <laughs> oh, such um, a catchy name. Yeah. So oh, creative. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's in wow. January 29. It should encounter it. Um, so far, I believe that 2014 MU69 is not believed to be big enough to be count as a dwarf planet. Um, but we'll find out when we get there what it actually looks like. Um, However, of course, yeah, there is another one that is much, much closer. And um, that is, of course, I mentioned the name Ceres earlier, C-E-R-E-S. This is a dwarf planet that's actually in the asteroid belt that sits between Mars and Jupiter. You know, there was a theory that there was a planet in that gap. And when Ceres was discovered, which was um, by a bloke called Giuseppe Piazzi in 1801, which is a long time ago, it was believed to be the missing planet. And so, you know, for a while, Ceres was considered a planet. Oh, um, cool. About 50 years or so, um, until it got demoted to asteroid, effectively, which asteroid means looks a bit like a star. So It, it people, got demoted even um, further than Pluto did. It did, it did. No one's Poor complaining series. about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. This, is the thing, this is the controversy. So it's actually been promoted now from... Asteroid to dwarf planet. So think about Ceres then. You're going to this controversy. Now, there are a lot, quite a lot of asteroids in the asteroid belt, as you would imagine. Ceres is the only one that's really big enough to be round and classify as a dwarf planet. It's still pretty small, though. It's only about 27% the diameter of the Earth's moon. Um, it was recently, though, visited by the NASA's Dawn spacecraft. And so we've got some really good pictures of it, a really good idea of what it's like. Um, it appears to have a dusty kind of cratered surface. Um, it's believed possibly, though, has an has um, a big, thick layer of water ice below that dusty surface cool. and then a rocky core. Um, the most interesting discovery was that there's really bright, shiny spots on the surface. Um, they're believed to be a bit of kind of salt deposits, so perhaps coming out from the inside, you know, with some um, some waters come through with salt in it. When I say salt, it's not sodium chloride. It's possibly magnesium sulfate hexahydrate or maybe sodium carbonate. We don't really know. <laughs> oh, you know, um, you're rather, you rather common... Salts. Yeah, that's right there. Um, it's not believed to be like from a, a volcano. There could be some sort of geologic activity, but not an actual volcano. Although there is a suspected ice volcano, massive ice volcano on Ceres, really? which is an exciting concept of an ice volcano. Pretty cool. Very that cool. I guess cool. what I'm saying is that being a dwarf planet isn't that bad. Pluto has some really good company there, a lot of interesting objects in our solar system. So give some love to the, um, to the dwarf planet. 
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.